think about perplexities, and at some point the perplexities of life will be behind us, and we will be in a place where there are answers and worship and blessing, and so let's continue faithful in that. The last several messages, we had been exploring some of the scriptures together about uh, trying to understand better the the whole purpose of the church, God's plan for the church, his vision for the church. We talked about a few things in relation to today, today's world, that never before in the history, I believe, of the church has there been so many attempts to redefine, restructure, reinvent, redesign what the New Testament church should be. Many people come to wrong conclusions about the church as God designed it. Now to think about the story of Cain and Abel and its application to, and lessons for us, there's a lot of different things that we could think about with the story of Cain and Abel, but you know where Cain obviously knew what God's request was or what God had required in relation to bringing a sacrifice because God held him accountable for it. Therefore, we understand that Cain would have known. But he brought his own sacrifice. He brought it his way. He came to worship the way he, he wanted to. And, of course, God, was, God rejected that. And I think today we can see that same thing repeated over and over again, where you know the, the tendency of mankind is to always try to produce their own level of God or their own level of what God wants and to bring their offering the way they think God should accept it in worship or in, in church life, as we see in nominal Christianity, rather than to simply, as Abel did, take the sacrifice that God requested, God wanted, and offer that in an acceptable way. And so... And that's an, an important, I think, lesson for us to, to think about there. So with the New Testament church under attack, what is the way forward? And what is Christ's message for us today in the church? I'd like to take your thoughts now to Ephesians 3 and read this, these verses again. You think about the purpose of the church, what Christ's desire, desire is. We're going to just uh, review a few things that we talked about, and then we want to look at more in relation to our homes and uh, teaching our children, helping our children to understand the importance of the church. Ephesians 3 and verse 14. For this cause, in other words, what God revealed in the uh, purposes of eternity past in relation to the people of God, he says here in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Remember, we talked about supernatural love. The love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly 
above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I'd like to uh, just look at several things in relation to what we talked about before. Just a little review. We talked about the, the truth that Christ wants us to see the glory of God in the church. Christ wants us to see the glory of God in the church. And so we think about that in relation to, to congregational life and church life and, and uh, different um, peoples that come together that make up a congregation, that make up the church. In all of that, the intention of God is that his glory would shine out. That's why it says here in verse 21, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. And so the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ in his bride, his body, the church, is to radiate out the, the, the glory of God. Now, you with me know sometimes in our lives, if we've lived a few years, that we haven't always seen the glory of God in the church. And sometimes it just doesn't seem very glorious. It seems rather human. And we struggle with some of those things. But as we, in sincerity and faithfulness, humility move forward together, I believe that the glory of God is seen in the church and will continue to be seen in the church. And that is, that is God's intention, that is Christ's intention. So how can we see the glory of God in the church? Many, as I said, many people, us sometimes as well, maybe have stumbled over the humanness of the church. Remember we looked at that scripture in Corinthians about, you know, that he put, he used human vessels or these frail vessels to, to hold this, this glory so that, the, um, that it is the glory of, of God that is, a, that is seen, not the, the humanness of ourselves. But if we are going to see the glory of Christ in the church, we need to take our eyes off ourselves and any agenda we may have and focus on the Lord of the church. And that must be our sincere desire. There's also, we talked about supernatural love. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. We'll never get done exploring this concept in, in church life, in congregational life, in brotherhood, that we love each other the way Christ loved us. That's, that's a tall order. That's going to take a lot of working through. And we must never, never settle and think that we've kind of got this figured out because I don't believe we, we do. We have to keep working at that. I see that love, and we need to keep seeing that love, and we need, that love needs to grow, and it needs to be that which is a part of our, our very being as a Christian. He also says there in verse 35 of John 13, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And so, first of all, we have this supernatural love, and I think according to the scriptures, when churches fail, when churches struggle, when people can't get along, there's the supernatural love of Christ missing somewhere. And I think we have to look and see where it's missing because that, that's, that's what's happening. It's not really that complicated. We complicate it. And so we need to, to, think, to think, of, think that through. But then also with this love 
where he says that um, if you're my disciples, and all men are going to know this, and they're going to know it by the way you love each other. I think it's one of the things, again, that we can learn and endeavor to understand and, and concentrate on. You know, the, um, the, the, the aspect of, of um, that people are attracted to the church because of the way brothers and sisters treat each other and uh, love each other. And we talk about people coming to the church or coming to the body of Christ because of the new birth and, and finding Christ and all of that. And that, that's, that's true. That's important. But to actually understand that Christ is saying that the power of evangelism, the power of mission, is first of all primarily because of the way you treat, you treat each other. And again, I think that's something that we can look at and explore and understand more of as, as we move forward. We also talked about you know, the glory of God in the church, and that's by teaching our children, showing our, ch our children. Uh, we refer to that somewhat and uh, see the glory of God in that way. Now, I'd like to also think a little bit. We talk, I, I briefly touched on this, but I'd like to go into this a little further. To teach them the glorious history of God's people. In most of our communities across Canada, there are, there are memorials honoring what is called the glorious dead. Those killed in battles, defending the country. And so the church, as Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews, especially thinking of chapter 11, that we are surrounded with that great cloud of witnesses. It is the glorious stories, I think, of those who fought and were faithful in the past. And I'd like to take us a little bit further from where we left off in, in the last message. And I, I, I would like to portray this, and I hope you understand that I'm not just referring to this because I enjoy history, but I would like to, to say that it, it goes a lot deeper than that. Um, in relation to, to, to history and teaching our children the what we can say is the glorious history of the church or the... the the history that is part of an identity. Now, we want our children to grow up with a good, solid, personal identity. It's, it's not easy when a person is struggling with personal identity issues and not really understanding who they are and where they fit in. And, and um, you know, therefore, decision-making is, is uh, difficult. And I think we need to remember that in the society and the culture in which we live in today, the devil and this fallen culture, fallen society, is out to destroy the personal identity of children. Now, you say that's out in the world. You know, people get so confused about their identity, they don't know whether they're man or woman, you know, boy or girl, things like that. That's just a, an extreme side of it. But that's only, you can say, the tip of the iceberg. And while we say that's out in society, yet we have to understand, I think, the pressures that can come upon us and where some of the, uh, that, that culture can rub off on us in, in the sense of not being careful that we preserve a distinct identity for our children. Now, I'm not talking about biologically so much as, as spiritually and emotionally, 
and also in the um, mental concepts that will make up that identity. As Christian parents, we face challenges in today's world as well in, in helping our children and youth in this very important area. And this, I think, is one of the ways in which we can focus on and see the glory of the church in light of this with, our, with raising our children in, in today's world. I think it's one of the tools that we need to employ. The, um, <clears throat> it's something I think we need to pay attention to as parents and as churches because it's easy to miss. Now, there are many things that go into forming the personal identity of a child. And that would probably be a complete message or a couple messages in itself. But it begins in close home relationships and it expands outward from there. I'm going to try to illustrate this for you. And so we're just going to keep it very simple, but we're going to draw a circle and say that this is the child. Child is born, a small baby. They don't understand anything about identity, except that there's a bond between them and their mother. And as they grow a little older with their father as well. So it's their parents. And so that is the, the identity of the child, which you could say is the next step out is their, their parents, especially their mother. Now, as that child grows, their identity grows. And you can say the next area would be like their siblings. I'm not going to write all these names in there. If you're taking notes, you're welcome to do that. They're siblings in a home. If there's more than one child, there's a brother or a sister that they grew up with, that forms part of their identity. You take it a step further. As a, that child becomes older, after a while they, they, you know, they start socially interacting with other of their peers, age group roughly, um, say like um, at a family gathering or in a, in, at church. And so you start to see that social development, that relationship. And then, of course, as they go to Sunday school, they're 40 years old, and they start going to Sunday school, and their circle grows. And that is part of their identity. It's part of who they are. It's who they relate to in a social level. And so they have friends in Sunday school, and they look forward to going to Sunday school. And uh, hear the Bible stories, say their verses, like we heard this morning. There's that innocent eagerness to do that, right? And we love that. I just, I just love it. Just too bad that us adults can't keep that, that in, inhibition, that innocence, and that eagerness. But it's, it's like Jesus said, you know, just become like a little child and do that. We have a hard time. But that's, I love that. And so there's, that is part of their identity. Now, <clears throat> And so they, they get older, and they have friends, and after a while they go to school. And this is kind of a big step. You as parents, when you remember your first child went to school, um, the child was a lot more eager than the parents in a lot of ways, usually, because there's some radical changes take place. And that child is not um, just in mom and dad's care anymore. The, the world is rotten. And so they have school friends now. And so that, that, um, that's also an uh, influence upon them, but it also becomes part of their personal identity. 
why do people plan school reunions after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Why do, why do people like to go to a school reunions? The people they went to school with are still part of their identity, right? That's the school I went to. Here's my teachers taught me. Here's my friends. It's part of who I am. That's my education. That's, that's where I went to formal school. See, it, it's all part of that, that identity that is a part of the life of that person. And so, okay, they go to school, and um, that, that broadens it out. They get a little older, maybe it's the youth group. They're old enough to join the youth group. And so that is a broadening out. Again, influences bear upon, but also an identity. I'm a part of this particular youth group. That's an identity. And you take that further then, you know, they get out of school and they join the workforce. And so they're out, their world broadens a bit. And now they're in the workforce. And um, they're facing, again, influences to bear upon them that were not there before. And, but also with that is a growing of their identity. So um, the job you're doing, the kind of work you do, the kind of work you enjoy or you wish you could do is all part of your identity. And so there's that interaction with the world. And then of course, you can keep taking this further. Um, suppose um, they, uh, you go to Bible school. Now you're, you're broad, your friendship broadens again. You go to Bible school. How many of you have gone to Bible school? You still remember your, your friends that you went to Bible school with? Some of them, most of them, a few of them. It's part of your identity. You spent three weeks together or whatever it was, and it's part of who, who I am. I still have some Bible school friends from all those years ago. So that's part of it. Um, you could take it into marriage. Uh, courtship and marriage. Again, identity. Now, the reason I'm, I'm looking at this is because there's certain levels here from here out, from the, from the personal identity of this person. Picture yourself here. And challenges that go with this identity. And a lot of these, these identities out here are directly connected to what has happened from here out. You see what I'm saying? As a person grows older. And so, um, childhood friends have had a tremendous impact on our lives. School friends, good or bad, there's an impact. And so there's that, that, that part of the influence that happens. And in, in this, we talked about uh, going to Sunday school and church services and the church family and all those things. Those are fundamental core issues in the life of a child that are, that are tremendously powerful in forming that person's identity. I still remember some of my Sunday school teachers. Some I enjoyed more than others. You probably too, but... But we, all, we, we had those. They were, it was an influence. And right up through, say like in Sunday school, right up through to my youth years, and some of my peers in the youth group, some of those young men, 
Some are gone. Some are still faithful. Many of them are still faithful. But there was a challenge there in that youth group that is part of my identity today. It's who I am today because that was an influence in my life, even though we haven't seen each other for years. It's still there. So now, in thinking of this, there's also something I probably should have added in here somewhere, and that is extended family. So that is like grandparents, it's uncles and aunts, and, and others that are a part of our biological or our, our, um, our, the family that, that we are a part of, that also is an influence upon our life. And you can say this morning, well, I don't really have grandparents here. Or, and I would just say, in relation to this, and I may come back to this later, and that is God's intention was that there would be generational faithfulness. Now, we all haven't had that. My mother's side and my father's side only goes back, as many, most of you know, only goes back about four or five generations as far as any kind of Anabaptist living whatsoever. They were, most of them was alcoholics and, you know, non-practicing Catholics. Um, but someone made a decision that started a, a different course that has influenced and brought me to where I am today. And I appreciate that. I respect that. That's part of history. If we're first generation, claim the heritage of God's people, make the right choices, follow through on that, and you start a whole avalanche, you could say, of generational faithfulness, which is what God wants. So all of these connections are part of the identity of a child or the young person. And I think our church family should simply be an extension of our own family. Now we have the, you know, our personal family, like I said, siblings, um, uncles and aunts, cousins, whoever. But really the church family fits right into that and should fit right into that in relation to the next step of closeness in brotherhood. And that is, I think, why the, the Bible uses the, whole, the term of family. You know, we talk about the family of God. Paul uses that term. And because that is the likeness that we are to, to have in true brotherhood. Now, the, um, also instilling in the heart of the child their link to church history will be a powerful point of identity for them. In other words, we can't do this as families um, if we try to just be an island in ourselves. But for a, a person to have a, a, a strong personal identity where you find security and rest in that, you need to be linked from the past, present, and into the future. And this was God's intention throughout history, that there would be that the family of God would provide that. And we looked at, in a previous message, Old Testament Israel, and that to be an Israelite was to belong to the people of God. And therefore, you were an Israelite, and that was your identity as a people of God. And <clears throat> that sort of came out a little bit in the Sunday school lesson this morning. 
So it was always God's intention that there, there would be this continuity. Now, in Psalm 78, there are verses uh, 5 to 7. Let's just turn to that. Psalm 78. Just think about the, some of the meaning of this. When you think about generational faithfulness, for he established a testimony in Jacob, verse 5, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So there you have the whole idea that God's intention was that the faith would move from one generation to the next. So you have what? Four generations there? at least, and that that would be passed on. And I think that that is uh, uh, an important part to remember. For this, for some, may not be a direct biological link, and that doesn't matter. But any one of us can choose to be faithful, and by that, as I said before, by the grace of God, start that chain reaction that will continue for those who follow. But we, we have that in, in the church. And... Um, and that is, that is such a blessing. I'd just like to share a little bit. I didn't really plan to, to say this, but I'd like to share a little bit of what's ha happened this past week in our mission efforts in Bangladesh. I'm not going to use names, but for the sake of protection, security. But as you know, there have been believers baptized there. And we've been helping them to understand what is needed to form a New Testament church. That was their desire. As they were came to Christ, showed faithfulness, we baptized them. We hadn't talked to them about maybe having a communion service. But in their studies of the scriptures, they said, no, we believe in the scriptures that even though we, we are our brothers here, we need to form a congregation first because there needs to be a membership, there needs to be accountability before we can really have true communion together. That was the Holy Spirit at work. We, we agreed with that. We understand, we understand that we practice that, but we're trying to help them along in their understanding. And they said, no, we need to establish a membership first. That happened this past week. And they had their first communion service. Some are Hindu. Some of those brothers are, were Muslim. Some of those brothers are Buddhist. Brought together by the Holy Spirit of God in true conversion, united and formed the membership of a congregation. One of the brethren that were there told us, he said he, he, they were sitting there and they they talked about the ordinance of feet washing, which is entirely new. And they read it in the scriptures together and how Christ did that. And the brothers said, they, they, they want to do this too. We want to do this. They said, well, how do you do it? So they explained a little bit how, how we go about it. They came out with some basins. One brother said there was a, one of the new brethren sitting beside him there. He said he just picked up that bowl of water and almost ran. 
to another brother's feet, knelt down there and washed his feet. This is Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist. We're now brothers in Christ. So eager, so consumed you know, by Holy Spirit, direction and power. For the, some of the wives, it's more difficult. In that custom or that culture, you know, the, um, the jewelry that is worn is part of their, is their dowry. It's their, it's their worth. It's all they have. They uh, had been looking at the scriptures together about what the Bible says about wearing jewelry. The next day, the next Bible session, two of the sisters, two of the women came with their jewelry taken off. They talked about the head covering. They went through all of that. Same sisters came with their heads covered. The Holy Spirit of God at work. That's the church. That's the way it should be. Just that innocent, you could say responsive to the Holy Spirit of God at work. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be pointing out to our children. We talk about the glory of the church and what God is doing and the importance of that. I would like to just think a little bit now, in closing, come back to this question of how important is the church? How important is the church to you? How important is the church to me? And this, I think, is where culture has affected us. And possibly more than we think sometimes. The church is not some accessory that is an add-on for being a Christian. The Bible teaches us that the church is the body of Christ. If Christ were here in person, would you ever, and I hardly even want to say this, but would you ever get upset at him? As Christians, we suffer at times for the name of Christ. There are Christians in the world that take that persecution bodily. Whippings, stonings, it's happening all the time. That's because they're attacking Christ, not just attacking those people. That's why Paul said that he bears those marks in his own body. How important is the, is the church to me as a person? Just stop and think, what, it, what, it, what does it really mean to me? And I think that it is important for us to make sure that we have not allowed the lofty and high concept of the church to slip in, in our time, 
in our lives today, which I believe is possible. And I know at times that I have not viewed the church in its high and lofty place the way Christ views it. It is his body here on earth. We are to be the hands and feet of Christ. We are to be his mouthpiece. This is his body, alive, functioning. We could also ask the question, how much does Christ love the church? Have you ever stopped to think about this one? How much does Christ love the church? Well, he gave his life for it. He bought it with his own blood. And it was only because of his love for the church that he did that. And so again, the question could be, what does Christ want to do in the church today? In our lives? Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 tells us this, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ's vision for the church is, that he is working in our lives personally today to take out those spots, to iron out those wrinkles, or says any such thing to clean up those blemishes that we have at times so that he can present it to himself, a glorious church. That's the stage of life in which we are in, where Christ is sanctifying, he's cleansing, he's washing it by the water of the word. And so we cannot underestimate the power of the scriptures in helping us and teaching us and exhorting us. Again, how much do you and I value the church? Do I honestly see the church as the body of Christ? Am I willing to personally sacrifice for the church? What am I willing to give up for the good of the church? There's a song we sing sometimes that has some, I would say, some almost haunting questions. I don't know how you feel when you sing this song. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou mightst ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave my life for thee, what hast thou done for me? My father's house of light, my glory circled throne, I left for earthly night, for wanderings sad and lone. I left, I left it all for thee. What hast thou, hast thou left aught for me? In other words, have you left anything for Christ? I suffered much for thee, more than thy tongue can tell, a bitterest agony to rescue thee from hell. I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? And I have brought to thee down from my home above, salvation full and free, my pardon and my love. I bring, I bring rich gifts to thee, 
What hast thou brought to me? May God help us this morning. So we think about Christ's love for the church, Christ's plan for the church. That you and I would continue, let's just continue, brothers and sisters, seeking the will and the plan of God, that we can be that faithful people, cleansed and washed and renewed and have those blemishes and wrinkles taken, taken care of so that we can be part of that glorious bride. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Even though at times, Father, we do not understand the depth of your love sending Christ into this world, that he would come and be willing to die and shed his blood, that we can be redeemed. Thank you, Father, so much for your plan and purpose for us in today's world, that though all around us things look difficult as the darkness continues to descend upon the land, upon nations, the spiritual darkness, May that your light shine true and bright from our lives. And Father, where we have failed in understanding your place and purpose for the church in our lives individually, as families, as a congregation, congregations, wherever we are, Father, we just pray that you would help us to know your purpose, to live out that purpose, and allow your sanctifying work to continue in each of our hearts. Father, we look forward to that day when you will gather all together the saints of all ages, that great family that you have been preparing and, and bringing together. And we feel this morning that deep unworthiness of being able to stand at that day with the saints of old, the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. The martyrs, those who have shed their blood to be true, to be able to stand with them. Father, help us to understand what all that means and what sacrifice is needed from us to follow your will today. And not only today, but to also understand your purpose and will for the future as we think about as time stands and our Lord has not returned we would be among those who are faithful, regardless of the cost. Be with us and keep us. Bless the needs of our hearts today as we have been in your presence. May your Holy Spirit continue his active work within us. We ask that in the name of Christ. Amen.